0: Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. It's time for another show dedicated to the world of keto. Check out ketoreset.com for details about my New York Times bestselling book and send your questions to info at ketoreset.com. We got questions, people, questions, questions. Hi, this is your host, Brad Kearns. Thanks for teeing me up. Interesting, fascinating. Hopefully, you will get some value out of it. And if the questions aren't valuable, I will go off on tangents. That's my profession. Just kidding. And I really appreciate you guys writing in. Info at com for your keto dietary related questions. Uh, We have some good ones here. This one's from Gil. Hey, love the podcast and the books. Been following for a long time, eating paleo for several years. I fell off the wagon a year ago and I'd been eating pretty crappy. Then I got grain brain and decided to get serious at age 54. Diagnosed with SIBO five years ago. That's Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, bad news, kind of a uh, consequence frequent consequence of the grain based high carbohydrate diet. you get this gut imbalance leaky gut syndrome, and you get bacterial overgrowth. Your intestines aren 't working well. worked hard to clear that up with functional medicine doctor. Oh my goodness, what a great idea for any of these questionable health problems that aren't straight up medical disease diagnosis. The world of functional medicine may be able to help you with a comprehensive approach to get your function right. They deal with diet, supplementation, uh, routine uh, medical exams as you're familiar with, but integrating all these different parts. So I think there's websites you can look up a good functional medicine practitioner near you. So, Gil is mentioning that his 85 year old mother has Parkinson's and was really enthusiastic uh, about keto. There's some uh, reference, a lot of reference that uh, keto can uh, help sufferers of Parkinson's. Uh, Doctor Terry Walls have some amazing uh, talks. Uh, particularly her TED Talk and other YouTube content where you can uh, listen to her, how she uh, basically got up and out of the wheelchair, uh, alleviating many of her Parkinson's symptoms just from dietary transformation. Lots of amazing stories like that. So here's what Gil did. He got the book and he dove right into keto and expectedly suffered keto flu and terrible energy crashes. A month and a half later, he got that Keto Reset Diet book. Uh, got a little more sensible, had a a much smoother ride, uh, possibly going back to that step one where you're just ditching grain sugars and refined industrial seed oils from the diet rather than worrying about the keto macros uh, too soon out of the gate. So we want to get fat adapted before we attempt this crazy keto thing, and that's what we tried really hard to convey in the keto reset diet. Uh, So Gil was 5'10", 188, now he's down to 172, Uh, reducing a lot of inflammation, improving his flexibility, getting back into martial arts, uh, feeling great, fasting oftentimes uh, from 7 p.m. uh, the previous night to 12 noon with only some keto coffee for breakfast. Uh, I don't know what's in his keto coffee, I wonder if that means a high-fat coffee, possibly. Otherwise, we just call it coffee, right? (laughs) Also, interestingly, carries around a bottle of water with a half teaspoon of pink Himalayan salt and a half teaspoon of no salt. I guess that's a uh, potassium product. Uh, In his water bottle, sipping it throughout the morning. Great suggestion. We know that we have an increased need for uh, minerals and electrolytes when we go keto because we're eliminating a lot of foods that cause inflammation and water retention throughout the body, along with water retention, of course, sodium retention. So it's a good thing to reduce inflammation, but your cellular structure has made an adjustment. You've shed a lot of this fluid, and therefore you have an increased need for... Uh, sodium and other electrolytes, particularly magnesium, potassium, the big shots. So Gil is talking about an energy drop at 3 p.m. some days still. Then he gets a second batch of pink salt and no salt and sips it throughout the evening along with 450 milligram of magnesium. Does this sound like a solid plan for electrolytes? Is there something else you would recommend? Is that something I will always need to do on keto or does the body eventually adjust? Do you think the afternoon energy gyps are from electrolytes or am I missing something else? I'm doing good on sleep, on diet, on stress management, uh, not so good on workout schedule. I have a sedentary job, but I move as much as possible. Thank you. Well, those are some good questions. Uh, Indeed... If you're eliminating these high-sodium processed foods, uh, the high-carbohydrate snacks... And treats and prepared meals uh, also happen to be high in sodium. Just about anything that's processed is going to be extremely high in sodium compared to real food. And that's why we have this, another reason why we have this elevated need uh, for sodium when we clean up our diet, uh, shockingly so. And that's also why uh, high blood pressure is such a huge problem and tied to uh, excess sodium intake, is because people are taking in you know, 10 times the sodium you might get from a natural food meal when they're having uh, a Campbell soup was a famous example uh, and many other things that are just uh, skyrocketing their sodium. And it might not be as straightforward, cut and dried. This high blood pressure equals too much sodium in the diet. Uh, so that's sort of a, a alternative or a functional health topic that's being debated now rather than the party line. I mean, at this point, really, folks... Uh, are you going to trust the conventional wisdom on anything after it's been absolutely destroyed and shattered that all these things we've been told throughout our lives? uh, One of the best examples is when everybody was told to switch away from that nasty butter that's going to clog your arteries and kill you over to the refined high polyunsaturated vegetable oil based margarine as a big health transition that now today, some estimates are saying that the increased consumption of polyunsaturated oils, uh, is responsible for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of deaths every year in America. Dr. Kate Shanahan um, pretty much went so far as to say that the government was doing a massive experiment that's been going on for some 50 years of how much shit food can we feed humans? Uh, How many people will die? What percentage of people will die? That's where we're at right now, unless we take action and make some changes. So... Wonderful to see the ancestral health movement growing. Thank you for listening to the show. And Gil's question, uh, Lindsay Taylor, who uh, manages this email account, uh, will often give thoughtful responses to people. We can't do it to everybody and we can't do it all the time, right? If you're lucky enough to get a response, one of the things she says on this topic is uh, it doesn't hurt, right? Adding a little bit of uh, pink salt to your beverage, uh, by and large, will help you better absorb the thru- the fluid uh, in the tissues throughout your body. In contrast, for example, let's say you go out there and do a workout in hot weather and then over the ensuing hour, uh, guzzle a gallon of straight water uh, from the convenience store on your way home. Uh, you are making an effort to rehydrate, so congratulations for that. But if it's straight water without that proper electrolyte balance, particularly the sodium balance, you are likely to just pee it out if you assault your system with a huge chunk uh, of water over a short period of time. So better hydration strategy would be to add a pinch of natural high quality sea salt Himalayan pink salt is a good example, other mineral salts out there, not the iodized salt that's been bleached and stripped of the, other, uh, the many other nutrients and minerals that are contained in high quality natural salt. If you sprinkle a pinch into every beverage that you drink and then sip it over a longer period of time, you are more likely to absorb and rehydrate the uh, tissues, muscles throughout your body. So yes, continue doing that. How much can it hurt? The body, the kidneys are very, very good at regulating your hydration balance as well as your sodium balance unless they get overwhelmed or highly stressed. And so some interesting recent research with hydration uh, is conveying the idea that uh, active fitness enthusiasts might want to have a predetermined hydration strategy rather than just going by thirst guidance. And that was the original primal blueprint message that's now being revised to account for uh, hectic modern life and the crazy workouts that we do after sitting around all day and then going and slamming something that's really extreme and getting into a possible dehydrated state because... We're too tired and too fatigued to have a highly sensitized thirst mechanism kicking in. You get what I'm saying? This has happened to me so many times where we're climbing mountains on a bicycle during a long training ride and getting hot and tired and trying to just get up to the top of the hill and focus on your pedaling. The last thing you wanna do or might be inclined to do is reach for your bottle and take a strategic drink of water every 15 minutes. You just kind of lose track of that and get more into the uh, intensity of the actual workout performance. Same with a CrossFit session or some strenuous class in the uh, the health club where you're going, going, going for an hour, uh, you're kind of tired and washed out after and maybe don't hydrate perfectly and then the hours go by, the hours go by. And your thirst mechanism is muted because you're still overheated from the workout and you're fatigued and then you take a nap. And so you get up the next morning, do another crazy workout, and you can see how you can get behind in the hydration category. So it's something that I've experienced many times myself where going by thirst is just not enough to get the whole picture right. And you can use some strategic Planning, like I better drink some water as soon as I wake up this morning because I have a hot weather, hot temperature workout coming up. That kind of thinking pattern. Okay, so how's that sound, Gil? Next, William was four and a half weeks, four and a half weeks into his keto journey and loving it. I'm disappointed that I'm not yet getting into that maximum ketosis range of 1.5 millimoles or higher. I've religiously followed the directions. I've been tracking my carbs, never going above 50. My first reading was 1.3. I checked again this morning and it was worse, exclamation point. Only 0.8, exclamation point. Am I doing something wrong? Oh, my goodness. We wrote about this a lot in the appendix of the Keto Reset Diet, and I think I talked about it uh, on uh, a couple videos uh, on the Keto Reset Mastery Course, ketoreset.com. Sign up for the course, man. You'll get a full immersion into all these things. Answer many of your questions. Take the discount. Brad 20, B-R-A-D 20, when you go check out at ketoreset.com, 20% off the course enrollment fee. Awesome, super awesome. Anyway, don't worry about it at all. There's something called ketone flux, where as you get more efficient at manufacturing and burning ketones uh, in your brain especially, you make only the ketones you need to to sustain optimal brain function at all times. You're not pumping out all these extra ketones in your bloodstream to have them float around and give you a good blood reading. That's not how the body works. It doesn't make extra of anything. So if you're going from uh, a reading of 1.3 the following week to a reading of 0.8 it may be because you're even more efficient at utilizing the ketones that you make. The best example of this is reflected in the ketone strips, the urine strips where uh, the darker you know you 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 uh, apply the uh, a drop of urine to the strip and you see what color you can darken the uh, pH tab, kind of like a pregnancy test, right? So uh, you can see that you're uh, getting a, a tiny bit pink all the way to dark red and the higher... Uh, the darker the color, the more ketones are in your urine. So what does that mean if you're peeing out a lot of ketones that your body has made uh, through delicate uh, mechanisms in the liver? It means that you're not utilizing them effectively. So the urine strips are the worst example of testing for ketones because you're testing what you're excreting. Now, when you prick your finger and test your blood level, that's a much more accurate indication of what's circulating in your blood and available for use by the brain and possibly the muscles. Uh, But again, as you get more and more fat and keto adapted and better at using ketones, it may or may not be correlated with a lower ketone value. We've done so much work and investigation on this matter, and it seems there's a tremendous amount of individual variation. I remember being really frustrated when I was doing uh, extensive R&D for the book and going for 18 hours fasted, coming off the previous meal of almost no carbohydrates. So now we're looking at 24 hours where I haven't had uh, hardly a bite of carbohydrates and excitedly pricking my finger, looking for... A big number and it coming out to be 0.4 or 0.3, I'm like, what the heck is going on? And what was going on was ketone flux, where at that time uh, I wasn't needing to make a lot of ketones. Maybe it was just after waking up, uh, not engaging in a lot of brain or muscular function, or for whatever reason. And all throughout my experience and charting out my daily ketone values, I never really got ketones that high. I don't think I ever got over 1.0, maybe once or twice, but mostly it was was bouncing around from under 0.5, which is the official cutoff, whether you're in ketosis or not, all the way up to uh, 0.7, 0.8. Nothing super impressive on the ketone competition scale. Uh, But I come to learn from the experts that it's nothing to worry about. And the true test of your fat and keto adaptation is the ability to skip meals and function well, perform a workout, uh, perform peak cognitive tasks without needing food and that's an indication that you're highly fat and keto adapted making whatever ketones you need and no more Uh, Finney and Volek talk about this extensively in their book The Art and Science of Low Carbohydrate Performance whereby initially when you first go keto your muscles and brain engage in a tug of war for precious fuel source that they have suddenly been deprived of, that is glucose. So when you're in a high carbohydrate eating pattern, you know that your brain is running almost entirely upon glucose when you're in high carb eating and that your muscles are highly reliant upon glucose, even for low intensity workouts because uh, of your dietary patterns. So when you go keto, all of a sudden the muscles are forced to burn fatty acids and ketones and the brain is forced to burn ketones knowing that it can't burn fat. So uh, your brain needs more ketones, your muscles need more ketones because they're not yet adapted to uh, being great at burning fat and you get the worst of both worlds. A lot of people might call it the keto flu or the performance decline that they experience uh, an initial ketone phase and that stuff is all no fun because you have lousy workouts and the afternoon blues when you're sitting at your desk after your lousy workout that morning. So what happens over time as you become more competent is the muscles get better at burning primarily fatty acids this allows the ketone production to be prioritized to be sent on an express train to the brain instead of being uh, diverted uh, into a muscle energy source Again, because the brain needs either glucose or ketones. So as you get better and better, uh, you're sending most of your ketones to the brain. Your brain is adapting over from being 99 100% reliant upon glucose to being uh, nearly two-thirds reliant when you're talking about a highly keto-adapted specimen, nearly two-thirds reliant uh, on ketones. And also the brain burns lactate, which is a little-known... Uh, uh, factoid that's now uh, being talked about more prominently so uh, we also have lactate that's available for use by the brain and the muscles uh, a byproduct of energy metabolism we thought it was bad lactic acid you've heard that uh, but it's actually a very uh, potent fuel source for both brain and muscles okay so um, don't worry about it that's william getting his satisfactory answer and then we got michelle I went through the Keto Reset Mastery course after doing my reset. It's been a great journey for me. No keto flu or offer experiences Uh, in the last month or so. However, I've noticed I'm getting some acid reflux about two hours after having my lunch and sometimes even dinner. Is it possible now that I've added some keto desserts like chocolate avocado pudding, pumpkin mousse example, into my diet that this is causing a reaction? I use monk fruit as the sweetener. Uh, I'm just wondering... Uh, if I'm regressing uh, and hoping it's not from my treats. Also, do you have an idea to get a glucose tester to see where I am and see how I'm feeling? I'm loving the lifestyle. Oh, finally, I spurred and tried a Jersey Mike's small sub. These are white sub rolls that are to die for. However, 20 minutes after eating uh, the turkey provolone cheese and sub sandwich, I was miserable to the point where I wasn't going to keep it down. I know if I'm stable, I should be able to splurge every once in a while and bounce back. Okay, two awesome questions by Michelle. Thanks. Uh, One of them having to do with uh, splurges and treats and and being able to handle it. Uh, Let's talk about that. But first, let's talk about the acid reflux. So this is a podcast that can't dispense medical advice, nor should anything be construed as medical advice. And you're talking about more or less a medical condition. So I have a hard time uh, giving you the reasons why or telling you this because of your dessert. So I guess more experimentation is warranted. And if you cut the desserts out for a couple weeks and have zero incidence of acid reflux or can somehow uh, tie it to certain foods, that's a big one. Uh, But we're also learning that uh, the more hours before bed that you can stop eating, The much better off you are in many ways. I'm not doing so well on that myself. I kind of find myself eating uh, closer to bedtime uh, due to the social aspects of that a lot of times. And so, yeah, we'll just try to do better uh, and don't eat, and then go lie down horizontally. So that's a real one to blame for acid reflux. Uh, my son was in the, uh, the student health center at UCLA uh, complaining of severe acid reflux, and it's because he's stuffing his face with so many calories day and night, trying to maintain a lot of muscle mass, and so that alleviated right away uh, when he stopped eating right before bed. So there you go. Uh, the desserts sound pretty clean and awesome. Chocolate avocado pudding, pumpkin mousse, oh my gosh, to die for. Uh, So hopefully that's not the cause of your acid reflux. Uh, But perhaps, you mentioned after lunch as well as after dinner, maybe you're sitting around uh, and could benefit from a little bit of movement, especially right after the meal, walking for uh, even a few minutes. There's one study that's referenced in uh, our new book, Keto for Life. I believe it was a 10-minute walk. Might have even been a five-minute walk. Or a 15 minute walk, something around there, five to 15 minute walk after a meal will mute the insulin response by half. How about that? What better thing to do to promote? Your progress toward fat and keto adaptation, escaping from carb dependency, then getting up and walking around the block after your evening meal especially. So try more movement after the meals. Uh, Don't eat closer to bedtime. And if it's still trouble, man, you're going to have to put the desserts aside since you suspected there might be something to it, right? Okay, so then she splurged on a Jersey Mike small sub. So I guess that means the bread was the unique factor there that hadn't been around for a while. And then 20 minutes later, wanted to gag it up. So, wow. Um, Interesting. Anyone else had that experience out there? What do you think? Are you nodding your head, shaking your head? What do we make of this? Uh, But indeed, we should be able to handle... Uh, indulgences, departures from the ultra-low-carb ketogenic diet and should be able to handle them uh, quite well, actually. This is a great insight from Dr. Tommy Wood. He's been on the show a few times uh, talking about how well, we should be able to handle any kind of calorie slam, including a binge of ice cream. Uh, if you're visiting Seattle where Tommy lives, oh my gosh. And did I give myself permission after he said that on the show to go try their world-famous uh, handmade homemade uh, ice cream uh, parlors that uh, are popular in Seattle. I went to four different ones, (sighs) Salt and Straw, Frankie and Johnny's, Frankie and Joe's, um, uh, 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 Central District, and one more that's pretty good three out of four. Oh my goodness they were absolutely incredible exotic natural flavors frankie and joe's is all vegan so i had flavors like uh, kale something ice cream i had a salty caramel ash ice cream which was a gray dark gray colored ice cream uh, made with activated charcoal inside which is good for digestion so pretty good stuff and yes we should be able to weather these dietary departures if we're metabolically healthy a lot of times we're coming into uh, the ketogenic experience or dietary transformation with some markers for uh, diminished uh, metabolic health, such as leaky gut syndrome, and where you become super sensitive uh, or you introduce a food that used to be okay and you haven't had in a while and you have an adverse reaction, this all could be tied to uh, uh, dysfunctional gut lining. So we want to focus on getting healthy in all ways, metabolically healthy first uh, before perhaps uh, doing a lot of um, uh, indulgent eating or or, uh, departures from the plan, right? Uh, Otherwise, uh, can't really give you a specific answer, uh, but hopefully it will be an isolated incident that you can laugh about later, huh? Ryan says, I read the Keto Reset. One concept I'm still not quite getting is the idea of how much fat I need. Uh, I guess this comes from when I think of Mark Sisson's phrase quote, You can get your next meal from your plate or from your button thighs. Your choice. And that's kind of a reference to um, the desire to reduce excess body fat or not, right? So keto-approved is a delicious morning omelet that tastes great and uh, has a lot of nutritional value. But if you're trying to reduce excess body fat, uh, you have a choice of getting the next meal from your plate or from your button thighs. So uh, it's a critical distinction because I feel like it's a fork in the road for keto enthusiasts. Uh, whether you're doing this uh, with a frustration with Uh, excess body fat in the background or whether you're at your ideal body composition and you're going for let's say the cognitive disease protection benefits or even the athletic performance benefits of keto there's a big difference in the decisions that you're going to make and the foods you're going to choose and how much extra fat you're going to consume just for the point of getting some nutritional value from the fat uh, and, and so forth so if you're trying to drop excess body fat then we're talking about eating fat only to the point of satiety and if you're a real badass and you really want to uh, get rid of some excess body fat, you're eating uh, enough fat to Uh, satisfy you temporarily, but you're also going into periods of time where you're in that caloric deficit where it might not be the most fun uh, part of your day or your life, but you're skipping a meal and you're waiting patiently until the next meal and you're turbocharging fat burning because you haven't consumed any calories. So indeed, the snacking on your macadamia nuts and all the things that are approved and allowable uh, in the keto plan are nevertheless going to compromise your fat-burning goals so pretty simple and straightforward but again you have to get metabolically healthy before you take a shot at dropping excess body fat Uh, so ryan says he's 60 days in he's lost 30 pounds in 60 days i look and feel so much better no kidding but i still have a decent amount of belly fat Uh, so do i need to eat as much daily fat when i have significant body fat to lose Uh, what about after I reach my goal weight or my percentage of body fat? Okay. Well, if you've lost 30 pounds in 60 days, uh, Oh my goodness, that's an incredible accomplishment. That's a very accelerated rate of dropping excess body fat. There's one caveat or one thing to pay attention to or concern with is that uh, your fat cells are the uh, storage depot for a lot of toxins, right? That's where fat is stored, on the animal, on the human. And so when you're dumping that much fat in the bloodstream to burn off, especially if you're coming from uh, adverse dietary practices like consuming a lot of highly refined uh, polyunsaturated oil, then you could be a little bit of a toxic effect from rapid weight loss, right? Cause you're shedding, you're purging yourself of these fat cells that are storing toxins. So you might want to back off a little bit, uh, experience or enjoy some plateau time where you're not in accelerated fat burning mode and then rev up the engines again and go for those caloric deficits again in sort of a stair-stepping manner rather than this extreme, uh, shedding, uh, day after day after day. And that's the same answer to people that write in and saying, uh, Uh, yeah, I've lost 30 pounds in 60 days and I'm really frustrated that I'm not losing any more weight. It's like, yeah, no kidding. Your body is just trying to uh, adjust and recalibrate and this is a big change and uh, therefore is sort of a big stressor to the body. Shedding excess body fat is um, you know, not homeostasis, right? It's the opposite of homeostasis. It's changing your body composition. So uh, relax with your pace, especially if you succeeded for a while. Uh, Guard against that toxicity reaction from uh, too aggressive of a body fat reduction resume. Uh, But over the long term to try to answer the question, probably the best suggestion is we can all eat to satiety and do pretty darn well. It's hard to screw that up or uh, imagine a lot of adverse consequences to just eating uh, enough fat to achieve dietary satiety, happiness, satisfaction, all that great stuff at your meals. And then if you want to have an aggressive weight loss strategy, of course you're going to look for ways to uh, play around on the edges, like I described, uh, waiting patiently for your next meal rather than just reaching for the fat because it's allowed on the ketogenic diet. And yes, yeah, it's is a good time to mention or observe that uh, in the extreme popularity that keto has achieved in a short time, Oh my gosh, it's been highly bastardized from what the original intent was, which is a starvation survival mechanism, genetically programmed survival mechanism for the human when the human is starving or has an extreme restriction of dietary carbohydrates, such as was the common ancestral experience for millions of years. We became really good at making these energy-rich byproducts in the liver uh, that are called ketones and burn beautifully in the brain to fuel the brain's ravenous. Energy needs as a glucose like substitute because the brain can't burn fat. It can only burn glucose and a little bit of lactate. Okay, so the best way to achieve the benefits of ketosis, maximum benefits occur when you are starving or extremely limiting your calories. Now, that's not a fun way to live over the long period of time. So we are trying to approximate the benefits of fasting and starvation, the health benefits that come when you're fasting or starving. We're trying to approximate those with this dietary pattern that greatly restricts carbohydrates so you still make the ketones. So yes, you can consume protein and fat and survive through the day rather than consuming water. You get what I'm saying? Uh... So it's a great modern strategy to get the benefits of ketosis. But what's happened with the popularity as people have taken their liberties with fat consumption and thinking even to the extent that consuming extra fat will prompt extra ketone production or something like that. So that's totally off base. We want to remember that fasting is the best way uh, to uh, gain the benefits of ketosis. And in fact, I talked about my blood testing and my experimentation. The highest readings came uh, through fasting and combining exercise with fasting rather than uh, dietary restriction. Strange, personal story only, but just take it for what it's worth. In other words, I could even have, let's say a uh, a carbohydrate high carbohydrate departure from my keto path, and then wake up the next day and fast for a long period of time, do a workout, test my blood at two p m and my ketones would be higher than in the midst of a three day uh, extreme dietary adherence to uh, low carbohydrate meals okay so fasting is really what turbocharges ketone production and so long term Ryan, uh, after you have reached your ideal goal weight, and percent body fat. Uh, There's no... prerequisite for consuming uh, a certain level of fat. You just use it to achieve dietary satiety and go for the natural nutritious fats that have a lot of health benefits, uh, taste great, are highly satisfying, and make uh, life enjoyable. So yeah, we don't need to get into a regimented approach when we have our appetite to guide us, right? Okay, here comes Sean. Ooh, he's been going 99% carnivore for the last six months. What are your thoughts, Brad? Well, okay, that's pretty short and to the point, huh? I have a lot of thoughts about that. Listen to the wonderful double podcast with Mark Sisson and Paul Saladino. And uh, Brian McAndrew and I joined in uh, for the second podcast, the Cat Calls from the Background. Those are the voices you heard, uh, but they're both on YouTube. And we got deep into it uh, with Sisson and Saladino, covering a lot of science about it and covering those main uh, Premises, the talking points that you hear that are extremely compelling, and if nothing else, an exercise in maintaining an open mind and critical thinking about this carnivore uh, premise. So, the controversial premise that's floating around is that plant foods, long considered to be the foundation of a healthy diet, Uh, without dispute, even from the, of course, the plant-based side all the way over to the uh, primal paleo-ancestral carnivore uh, keto side. Uh, We all are pretty much in agreement that uh, the colorful plants of the earth, the fruits, the vegetables, the nuts, the seeds, are full of life and energy and nutritional value. And you should emphasize those and have the most colorful plate possible. And then here comes this carnivore premise suggesting that plants... Contain these natural agents called antigens, uh, toxins that plants manufacture to ward off garden pests, so they won't get eaten. They're living things; they don't want to get eaten by the uh, the bugs in the garden or the humans that pick them. Right. For this reason, we have to soak and sprout and ferment and denature and cook the plants so that they can be edible. You ever seen those, uh, appetizer platter where they have the raw broccoli and the raw cauliflower? have you ever tried to eat a heaping handful of uh, raw cruciferous vegetables a lot of people out there will get bloated and not feel so great because the cooking uh, breaks down the antigens and makes it more digestible so what's happening when we consume these mild plant antigens is that we elicit an antioxidant defense response in the body so we're eating a small poison and kind of reacting back with an antioxidant response. A positive hormetic stressor is the plant consumption. Uh, This is pretty much undisputed and it was news to me because uh, a lot of times we're taking that intuitive leap or that uh, logical leap where we say broccoli and kale are high antioxidant foods, but what they're actually doing is uh, triggering a high antioxidant response. And so the carnivore argument presented beautifully by Dr. Saladino uh, in the show I did with him on Get Over Yourself podcast and also with Sisson's show was that We don't really need another hormetic stressor in life. We don't need the plant to be healthy and the uh, carnivore argument, Sean Baker advancing this topic too, is that plants were merely survival foods. They were insurance against unsuccessful hunting. And if we were able to go out and have our nets full of fish or bring down the prehistoric woolly mammoth, Sean Baker stating memorably that if we were able to bring down one of these giant prehistoric beasts, that would supply around 3 million calories nose to tail and it would feed an average size clan of the old times of around 30 people for months. They wouldn't have to pick a fruit or a nut for a long time when they had this beast to feast on. So if you uh, now engage in the critical thinking exercise to realize that uh, these plants have been survival foods throughout evolution, because we are most, most certainly omnivores, but were we omnivores for the reason, the the uh, uh, the fallback against unsuccessful hunting. That's a big difference from us having to go and find these items, find these foods, and stick them in our diet in order to be healthy. Uh, it's now clear that being in a fasted state and banking a lot of hours in a fasted state is. Uh, our healthiest disposition. That's when our um, cell repair functions, our immune function, and our anti-inflammatory response is the greatest when we're in a uh, fasted state. So we don't need that morning berry smoothie mixture, that concoction of fresh juices uh, to get the antioxidant response that we can handle naturally, internally. There are three major internal antioxidants. Glutathione is the often mentioned superstar, very powerful internal antioxidant that kicks into high gear when you're fasted. We also have uh, uh, catalase and superoxide dismutase, SOD. So it's SOD, catalase, and the antioxidant superstar glutathione. So fasting equals massive internal antioxidant response. Eating broccoli, eating kale, eating your uh, freshly squeezed juice, also an antioxidant defense response, but arguably unnecessary. Can we get our hormetic stressors in other ways, such as doing a sprint workout is a hormetic stressor. Jumping into the chest freezer cold plunge is a hormetic stressor. These have no known negative side effects, right? Unless you stay in there too long and it no longer becomes a hormetic stressor. And do too many sprints, stay in the cold too long, you die. So that's not a hormetic stressor. But back to the plant argument, if we eliminate plants from the diet, are we going to suffer and shrivel up and die? And the answer is... Most likely no, because we have some incredibly nutrient-dense foods from the animal kingdom that have sustained human life for two and a half million years. Uh, The other wrinkle comes in where if you are suffering from an inflammatory or autoimmune condition, there are some epic... Uh, examples of transformative healing in a short time by subjects who eliminate all plants from their diet and have an extreme turnaround in debilitating inflammatory or autoimmune conditions. So these types of folks, if you're listening and you're suffering, go to meetheals.com and learn all about this crazy uh, uh, side benefit of the carnivore diet for sufferers. But let's say you're not suffering. Let's say you have no known ill effects from consuming your delicious salads uh, and other vegetables in the diet. Then we're going to examine the nutrient density of something like liver or salmon eggs uh, in comparison to uh, a broccoli, kale, uh, a a turnip, a tomato, uh, a handful of nuts. And uh, generally speaking, maybe this can be argued. But generally speaking, uh, the nutrient density and the amount of uh, the quantity of nutrients that you're getting from the animal source food, especially the organ meat, which is the concentration of the most nutrition, is vastly superior to what you're getting from a bowl of plants. So now I'm sitting back, taking a deep breath, going, "Holy crap! What if this entire premise of the varied, nutrient dense, colorful diet can be challenged with the carnivore argument?" So. So. So it's very, very interesting, very compelling. It was compelling enough for me to try it, Uh, not super strict like uh, Sean going 99% carnivore, but I was mostly on this uh, carnivore and chocolate diet where I ate very little vegetables for uh, about three months uh, in a specific uh, experimental pattern, very little vegetables, uh, very little fruit, very little nuts and seeds. So my plant intake was minimal, uh, Oops, there was some guacamole going down the pipe here and there. There were some sun-dried tomatoes when I was making my salmon, right? So I wasn't extremely strict, uh, but mostly carnivore pattern and definitely emphasizing the nose-to-tail strategy rather than the Burger King strategy. So I was really trying hard to get the the eggs, the salmon eggs, uh, wild-caught salmon, good cuts of grass-fed meat, and then throw in the organ meats too, especially liver, Uh, So I can report uh, great experience, great success. It coincided with me dropping uh, about seven pounds of excess body fat. And so I will say the carnivore diet is extremely uh, useful for uh, body fat reduction because it has very high satiety level because you're eating these nutrient-dense foods that are high in protein, high in fat, both delivering a lot of satiety. Uh, You're regulating your insulin production to be very low because there's very few carbs available in the true carnivore diet or the carnivore emphasis diet. I guess I should really call mine the carnivore and chocolate diet because I was still uh, enjoying my uh, squares of 80 85% dark chocolate uh, every day. And so that's obviously a plant food from the uh, cacao plant. So I wasn't uh, qualifying for the 99% club, but it was a really interesting experiment. I noticed absolutely no uh, distress in the digestive tract for months on end Uh, Unlike my times where I'm consuming these uh, nutrient-dense super green smoothies where I'm dumping a bunch of uh, raw plant matter into the blender, raw kale, raw spinach, raw celery, uh, I would oftentimes get bloated and distressed from drinking these smoothies, but still powered through in the name of health because I was getting this incredible uh, dose of nutrient density. But that digestive uh, effects were extremely interesting to me. That's got to be a good thing, right? Um, some people are concerned about the microbiome diversity when you're consuming all this plant life and of course you're nourishing your gut with all these different forms of bacteria and forms of uh, resistant starch and uh, the probiotics that uh, are food for the, uh, the prebiotics, the resistant starch and all that great stuff. And I think it was Brian McAndrew that made the offhanded quip that was uh, a pure genius where he said, you know, there's a rainforest As a microbiome, and there's also a desert as a microbiome, and both are natural and healthy and thriving. So you go out into the desert and you think, gosh, what could ever survive here? It's 100 degrees. The answer is all kinds of organisms survive in the desert. It just looks differently than the rainforest, and it might be a little more streamlined. So if you can imagine your gut microbiome a little more streamlined, because you're cutting out all these foods that you have to eat to sustain a healthy microbiome in the first place, hmm... Now you start thinking even more deeply about this whole premise. Do we really need to go looking for this incredibly varied diet in the name of health? When, like Liver King, Brian Johnson at AncestralSupplements.com, he's all about four pounds of raw liver each week and feeding it to his little kids and getting the incredible nutrient density. What does it have? 50 times more B12 in liver than in a hamburger or a cut of muscle meat. All kinds of stats like that. The preformed vitamin a that's so important to healthy hormonal function, cellular repair, and what do we do with vitamin A in the uh, vegetable, the plant-based diet? Is we have to convert it uh, at great effort from the beta carotene that's present in the uh, the plant foods. So we have to work hard to get what's already there in the exact form that we need it in. Uh, the vitamin A example from eating liver versus working hard to convert that beta carotene from the plants. So uh, you ask me, Sean. You ask me. That's my opinion. Now, am I going to be a carnivore for life because I made some, uh, uh positive statements, compelling arguments here? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, until further notice. Uh, But if I'm a sufferer, oh my gosh, I would be on this train tomorrow because you can't hurt for 30 days. So if you have autoimmune or inflammatory conditions, try carnivore for 30 days because these stories, these success stories will blow your mind. If you're trying to reduce excess body fat and you've tried some other things and have struggled a little bit, try carnivore for 30 days. It happened so easily for me, I barely even noticed. When you have a big meal of liver and hamburger mixed together or the stuff I was making, you're not hungry for a long time afterward, you feel satisfied in a way that's hard to describe because the nutrient density is so strong of the food. Uh, but on the other hand, um, Dr. Saladino made this point too, that uh, fruit is the least defensible part of the plant. The fruit is the final offering of the plant. The plant doesn't care if you pick its berries at the end of that growth cycle. The seed is the most defensible part of the plant. So when you're eating, for example, a nut or a seed, that's going to have a higher level of plant antigens and potential problems with the lectins and the phytates and the things that we know to be true that are present in high levels, especially in grains, right? So we have grains, nuts, seeds, uh, counting the the plant matter that we're trying to avoid, uh, Uh, But in terms of the fruit, he kind of gave a uh, greater permission to consume fruit than consume vegetables. So that's a backwards from what we've been talking about in the Primal Paleo Ancestral Health Movement for a decade, that emphasize your vegetables, pile them up on your plate, but watch out for the fruit because it's a little too sugary and it can really add up. And I will still stand by that because uh, going and looking for fruit in the wintertime is probably uh, against our genetics, not probably, it's absolutely against our genetics, Dr. David Mutter says point blank on one of his podcasts, don't eat fruit in the winter. Don't eat any fruit in the winter. Boom. You know what? I'm buying into that. Forget it. I ain't buying no berries from Chile. I'm just going to wait until the farmer's market has them in the spring and summer and emphasize seasonal fruit. But now here we are with fruit in season and I am pounding the berries like I have never before in the last 10 years because I've been trying to moderate my fruit intake a little bit in the name of being primal paleo. So that's an interesting flip-flop where I have de-emphasized the vegetables, especially the raw stuff going into the smoothie that was reliable to get me bloated and pumped up, and then gone back more into the fruit. Why? Because I enjoy the taste of fruit. So, uh, the... A, a commitment to go strict carnivore, I think, needs a little more uh, direct rationale where someone's proving to me that this is terribly wrong for me to consume a few fresh blackberries. And for many people, that is the case for a while until they heal their gut. Uh, but that's my stance on it. And it's really interesting, fascinating. It's great to see the continued progress uh, in thought and in practical application of advanced dietary theory. But I guess I should close my comments by saying you know, if we just get rid of the junk, we're going to gain most of the benefit. So when I sit and talk to Rip Esselstyn, I did a podcast with him on Get Over Yourself coming soon, the plant-based leader and advocate, old friend of mine, and we can't be further apart on a lot of dietary theory. He says eggs and uh, uh, meat are absolutely nasty and they're going to clog your heart and kill you. You shouldn't touch that stuff. Obviously, we have a different opinion when we're talking about grass-fed animal product and pasture-raised eggs, but the common thread that we have and the great success that he and his father and people in the plant-based community have achieved is the elimination of shit food, just like with a nose-to-tail carnivore strategy or a ketogenic eating strategy or a primal paleo ancestral-inspired eating strategy where you are ditching the processed sugars, the refined grain, And the industrial seed oils. So let's not get too far ahead of ourselves and focus on the highest rate of return, which is to clean up your diet and have zero tolerance for any of that crap. And then you can dabble and experiment as I have been uh, in whatever you want. So please don't write me emails saying, Brad, you keep changing your story. Now you're doing carnivore, and before that, you were doing these big smoothies. Yep. And I probably will continue to experiment and modify and adapt in the future and also place it in the proper uh, pocket in my uh, uh, multi-pocketed travel vest. You know those vests where they have a zillion pockets? I'll place the dietary element in a nice small side pocket because it's not the end all and we don't want to get too carried away. We want to make sure we sleep, move, move. Have positive social interactions, positive attitude, all kinds of that stuff in the quest to live long and live healthy. Whoo! Nice finish. How's that trip out? Thanks for listening. So, Chris Kelly, nourish, balance, thrive. We're we're talking about health, and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's primal kitchen uh, condiments on the table it's true my daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the primal kitchen wilder (laughs) it's it's this cute thing actually she does we have a local state park called wilder ranch oh yeah and uh, she calls the ranch dressing wilder ranch dressing (laughs) there's no way we're going to correct her on that it's just too (laughs) perfect so so endearing uh how old Um, is she she's four. Oh my god so she likes like the mayo on a oh yeah on. she so she loves those so we love them as well we have uh we, we eat them all the time we eat the mayo we eat the balsamic we eat the the ranch um the avocado oil we use all the time and, and so you know that's completely genuine and i don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments i really appreciate that what an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive and yes Primal Kitchen you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want (laughs) and uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains thank you very much Chris (laughs) it's my pleasure